So what we're always trying to figure out is, okay, how do we help Americans, and more specifically, conservative and moderate Americans who see, who have honest questions about these issues, say, think differently about immigrants and immigration, so that they, they don't approach, uh, approach it from a, 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 a position of fear or a posture of fear. And that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of awkward conversations. Um, but I feel like if we're ever going to fix the system so that it actually operates with a sense of moral purpose, then we've got to help Americans understand why immigrants and immigration are a net benefit to them and their families. This is the very awkward, very Cuban time beginning of this episode of Pancom Podcast. I'd like to say this is not my fault either. Everything is your fault. Nope. No, you're this right. It's, it's actually completely my fault. Good. Um, Good. I am Nick Jimenez. I'm joined by Petey the Dog and also Chef, 8th grade basketball MVP and proud Ford Bronco owner, Michael <laughs> Beltran. We are joined this time around by special guest... Ali Nurani, who, unlike many of our guests, has made my job of introducing him very easy because there's a bio on the wow. National Immigration Forum's website wow. um, that I'll read at least some of. But uh, I mean, are they going to get like the fact that I was like most improved high school basketball player? And oh, I mean, that that's not impressive. in there. This is this is like breaking news. This is good. Yeah. This is good. I mean, have them add this. I mean, most improved. That means you really suck to begin Man. with. Is it, I mean, everyone starts somewhere. Right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No. Uh, Ali Nurani is president and chief executive officer of the National Immigration Forum, a nonpartisan advocacy organization working with faith, law enforcement, and business leaders to promote the value of immigrants and immigration through innovative constituency, communications, advocacy, and advocacy strategies. Ali is one of the nation's most creative coalition builders. I would go on, but I'm going to leave it there and transition to saying. That um, and I'll, I'll let you tell people roughly what the timeline is, but you've also got a book on the way called Crossing Borders uh, that has the detail on the cover that might be most exciting to listeners of this podcast, uh, unless it gets swapped out for somebody else's a blurb from Jose on there. I know I'm reading the manuscript. Maybe somebody else shows up and bumps him from the cover. I'm not sure, but as of right now, Jose Andres has his blurb on the cover. I can I can step in. Go for it. I can I can take Jose. This is now. Oh, I there you go. Jose, if you need so, if we need to bump Jose off for some reason, yeah. I can do it. The blurb will be Ali Nurani like my Negroni. <laughs> Michael Beldrin. <laughs> We've made it. Actually, before we jump in here, somebody made a really good point to me today about you. Sure. Okay. That That's they were terrifying. actually yeah I know they were actually shocked that you have not taken it upon yourself to create a Mike Beltran Wikipedia page with all the fake information that you give people. That's good. I know, and I'm actually into it. It'll be there tomorrow morning. I'm actually super into it. One, because I don't own a Ford Bronco. I ordered. I own a GMC Jimmy, and yeah. it's. I can't go another day with, hey, bro, nice Bronco. It's just, it's infuriating. I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. And then when you have that whole, co that conversation that I posted today is so common. It's this one. It's like, hey, bro, nice Bronco. Uh, it's a Jimmy. Your name's Jimmy? No. The car. It's a GMC Jimmy. Oh. And then they walk away. Where's the Bronco? Yeah. No. See? <laughs> it's not a Bronco? Yeah, no. And then it's just more of the like the back and forth, and they look at you a little like... like but really, over. the GMC is like a very underrated automobile. There's just not a lot of those on the road anymore. Cool. The GMC is like... I love Obviously, Chevys and GMCs, like I'm an old car guy, so yeah. the Chevys and GMCs are the, the epitome of like great 
square body cars. There's, they're like they were tanks before they were tanks. Oh man, and they ride incredibly well. They also have the best air conditioning of old trucks ever, which is what you need in Miami for sure. No. Fords, no bueno. Really? Yeah, no bueno, no bueno. Huh. Yeah, you just and can't. is it old enough to have the AC like with the lever? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I have a rental car right now that has uh, like still the hand cranks. What? I know, I know. It's, it's well, a t- I mean, it's who's t- who's set up your rentals? It's a t- it's a tough industry. Right now. <laughs> <I was laughs> some supply say. chain issues. You have like <laughs> no power windows. You're like cranking them down. But but to, I, I mean, I only recently got a car that has power windows, so I feel like I'm returning to 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 my to my roots here. Personally, because I have old cars, I prefer them not to have power windows. Yeah, because they always go up and down. Yeah, old cars sometimes windows don't go up or down. Exactly. Exactly. So and power locks. How do you feel about that? I've never had that. See, I, I I am adjusting to a life with power locks and power windows. Wow, what was your vehicle before this? I'm intrigued. It was so. We're off to a, a, just a. <laughs> 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 All right. This is such a Pancom podcast start. You don't even know. Go okay. On. So when I first got into immigration, because we have to at least give it an anchor, right? Yeah. I was in Boston, and I was driving a Mitsubishi Mirage. It was a hand-me-down. I'd say late 90s Mitsubishi Mirage from my little sister. This car had been broken into by a bear in Yosemite. Wait, 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 wait. An actual bear? An actual bear. Uh, That's, (laughs) it sounds like, if this isn't in your book, man, you're not writing it right. I'm just saying. There are many things I'm not doing right. But at some point, like I was literally holding this car together by duct tape and I would give staff a a ride in the car and they would just kind of walk up and like, Mm -hmm. really? Yeah. And I yeah. drove that thing until it died. And then I upgraded to a 2013 Hyundai Accent. That was my most recent car before the Power Windows experience. Wow. Yeah. So it was a Mirage to an Accent. Yeah. And now it's a Kia Soul, which is a fine ride. Kia, the Soul is the, the box one with little little, boxy little one. hamsters. That's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. the commercial with the hamsters. Yeah. Wow. We're learning so many things here. <laughs> all right. So let's go to the beginning. Okay. Uh, first of all, I can't thank you enough for doing hey, this. thank you. I feel like uh, if you would have listened to this podcast before, you probably wouldn't have agreed to come on here. But I but feel, here I am. Yeah, but here you are. Um, born and raised in California, yeah? Yeah. So the story is um, my parents were both uh, born in Bombay. Uh, and then soon after partition, um, they moved to uh, Pakistan. So they really grew up in, in Karachi. And in about 1971, my parents, because of the 1965 Immigration Act, uh, were able to immigrate to the United States. And this was just as the India-Pakistan War was hopefully coming to a close. My, my dad said, OK, we're going to have better opportunities in, Calif- in, in the U.S. My dad's older brother was in uh, Livermore, California, who's an engineer. So my parents landed there uh, for about six months. They were both trained as physical therapists. So... I would say after about six to eight months, they were able to find a place to get their training. Um, and then I came along in 73, and uh, I was born in Santa Cruz, which is a cool little town right on the coast in California. And then uh, we moved to Salinas probably in uh, 1975, 74, 75, because at that point there was only one other physical therapist in Salinas, California. And so my dad ended up in the, the right place at the right time. And uh, we were very fortunate to grow up know with parents who taught us to you know be very very inclusive understanding uh care about people and was really fortunate to grow up in a town that was big enough to introduce me to other people but small enough so i got to know a lot of different people 
How many siblings? You said you have a brother and a sister? Two younger sisters. Two uh, younger sisters. Yeah, so one is a, um, she trains teachers in Los Angeles. She's a mother to two amazing girls. And my own youngest sister is a classical Indian dancer, a Kathak dancer, wow. uh, kind of in the Bay Area. So we're kind of unique for a South Asian family in that none of us are doctors, none of us are engineers, um, but we're all pursuing our dreams. Which is, I mean, incredibly important. Because yeah. when you pursue your dream, work is a lot more fruitful and enjoyable yep this episode of pancom podcast is brought to you by the barrel this is the barbecue grill that if you're watching this in video form is in front of us we're here with uh, chef danny boza danny tell us a little bit about what the genesis of this thing was where does the barrel come from you know i i I was a chef. Oh, I was a you know working for a civil engineering firm before that, and I really hated everything that I was doing at the time. So I've always had a passion for cooking, and then you know I, I decided one day to move to New York, and everything took off from New York, Chicago, Hong Kong, L.A., you know Colorado, and then to Hawaii, and then back to Miami, and then I opened up my own spot in uh, Coral Gables, got sold the restaurant, and moved on to the next big, bigger, better thing. Obviously, COVID hit, so we had our own passion project. It started because a, a, a friend, was now a, bit, a business partner, Diego Londonio, approached me to do a menu for his coffee shop. And I said, you know, let's go to Colombia. I got to see the tree. I got to, you know, feel it out, get a little inspiration. So I went out there and then, uh, you know, I tried some of the food when I got there and I was blown away by the flavor. I found out they were actually cooking with the actual coffee tree. And then I saw their South American style roaster and it was just really dinged up, beat up oil drum. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I can make something that's really cool. So myself and Diego put our heads together and, you know, it, it's a home run in my opinion. It's very sleek, very beautiful to look at. Um, it's very, very cool. It's a conversation starter. People see that in your yard and they want to talk about it. Yeah, definitely people see it. And again, we're not trying to take over anybody's yard. We're trying to a compliment, you know, make it a compliment to it. So what you would do on your regular grill for something very quick, you might want to say on a weekend, I got more time. I don't want to chill out and, you know, use the barrel and, and create some beautiful flavors out of that with our hardwood lump charcoal. Do you remember what some of the first things you did with it when you were maybe like prototyping it or you had like you had it close to final form? Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll keep it short. So one of the main things was is that our base was simply just the base. It was just a very plain base. And uh, in order to stop all the fat that was dripping and rendering, I would use sand around the side. But of course, you know, even some of the best chefs in the world make some of the greatest mistakes. So I would drop some of the food directly on the sand and there's no getting sand off food once it hits it. So we had to think of a different system. So now we created these two half moon systems at the base in which you can add liquid and have a grate on top, which pretty much sets this apart from any other, you know, grill, roaster, smoker, which... You know, the three-in-one combo is not really commonly found out there. Very cool. So if people want to learn more, if people want to buy this thing, how do they get more information about the barrel? I would say go to our Instagram page, you know, at Barrel the BBQ. And, you know, you can go and see our link tree there, which has our YouTube channel, our order page, our information, our specs about the barrel. And it has a bunch of fun videos and very cool things that we've cooked out of it so far. Very cool. And once you're there, if you use promo code PANGKONG10, that's PANGKONG10. One zero, P-A-N-C-O-N, because I know a lot of people have trouble with this. We don't speak Spanish. We've been called Pumpkin Podcast, the Panko Podcast. This is P-A-N-C-O-N, one zero, for $100 off of the barrel. Thanks, man.
Awesome. Thank you. This episode of Pancom Podcast is also brought to you by Elite Impact Windows. Elite Impact Windows does exactly what it sounds like they do. They are purveyors of impact windows. That's the kind that, especially if you're in a hurricane-prone sort of area, you want so stuff doesn't come flying through your windows. Mike, you have impact windows on some of your restaurants. Listen, I heard a rumor. Tell me if this is true. Are all their products tested to go up to 185-mile-per-hour wind pressures? That is how their products are tested. All their products are tested to meet that. I don't know. I've never been out in 185-mile-per-hour wind. But if I were, I think I might want to wear some of these windows as like a suit. I feel safer already just thinking about if I was walking around in that kind of wind and I was wrapped around with their just windows just wrapped around me, I'd yeah. feel like a much safer person. Yeah, you should put them on your caddy. I, mm, You know, maybe maybe not. But I, And I also heard that they meet all the requirements of Miami-Dade County. They do meet all the requirements of Miami-Dade County. Fuck me, that's amazing. EliteImpactGlass.com or on Facebook, Elite Impact Windows, Instagram, Elite Impact Glass. They are proud partners with Eco Windows, CGI, and Windor. One of the things I really appreciate about them and their company is that all their products are made locally here in South Florida. And fuck me, that's amazing. Look at this. They are all made here in South Florida. Did you do your research? Man, I did not do the research. (laughs) Somebody didn't show up ready. They have competitive pricing with Totally 0% financing available. I mean, I don't know. If you have credit like mine, you might not get 0% financing, but (laughs) it may be an option. It's possible that that's an option for you, 0% financing. I don't know exactly how that works. Whatever the case, if you go on the website, you ask for a quote, and you mention Pang Kong Podcast, you will get 10% off of your installation. And I don't know if you guys have ever installed Windows before, but 10% off of window installation, that's a good fucking deal. And you know what? You got it here first on Pancom Podcast. That's right. Mention Pancom Podcast. Again, it's EliteImpactGlass.com or Elite Impact Windows on Facebook, Elite Impact Glass on Instagram. By the way, you mentioned restaurants. They do do. They, com- do, they, they do do, they do, do. <laughs> commercial properties. So whether it's for your home or your business, if do, you need a lead impact do, glass do, to put, do, uh, you know, all that do do, um, and do the things that they do do so well, yeah. uh, you wanna you wanna get in and on that. Also, this company very woke, very woke. They also offer solar power systems with backup batteries and custom generators for your home. You know why? Because they're woke. I, I don't know if that's a positive thing these days to be woke, but what? you know, but it's it's nice. I mean, sounds good. It sounds good to me that there's solar power involved. I'm into it. Generators, solar power, impact glass. Uh, if you go to their website, they got a video that shows off like a home that has all of that stuff going on at one time, which is pretty wild. That's um, a lot of panels, a lot of glass, a lot of things. Pretty soon, we are going to get our hands on a, uh, at least one pane of impact glass. I'm ready. And we're going to try to break it. I'm ready. I don't know what the procedure will be, uh, <laughs> but our but Mike's breath will have a blast of freshness from that banaka you just heard. I like the I like this a banaka a banaka blast at last. Fast blast banaka. I just want everybody to know, uh, and apologies to Elite Impact Glass, because uh, this uh, I don't want this to sound like an ad for Banaka, but in the time that we've been sitting here to record this ad, Mike has blasted himself with Banaka like five times. Twice. Kicks I don't out. know, man. Twice. I don't know. Come on. Twice. Elite Impact Glass. Thanks to our sponsor. Thanks. Go, go get your windows from Go home. Go get go get those windows. <laughs> So, I mean, how, how was the experience growing up in California? So, growing up in Salinas was kind of interesting because, um, as I tell people, I grew up in a South Asian community that consisted of my parents, my sisters, and myself. 
because right. Salinas, California was by and large a city that was either white or Mexican. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I very early on, whether or not I realized at the time, got to understand, okay, how to get to know different communities and, and really kind of get along with people. And I was able to, for better or for worse, you know, shapeshift to a certain mm. degree, right? And those are the kinds of early lessons that you, you kind of keep with you. Yeah. Uh, and so I grew up in Salinas, which was in hindsight, great. You know, just like any place where you grew up when you're growing up, you're like, okay, I want to get out. Um, but then I ended up going to school at uh, UC Berkeley and then ended up on the East Coast in Boston for a master's in public health. So that's a switch. That was... Uh, it's like one side all the way to the other one. And man, I got to tell you, like the, the food in Boston is much better than it is uh, back then, now than it is back then. So I moved to Boston in you know, 1998 um, after growing up in California, and I was just miserable. Yeah. Uh, because there's, you know, there's no... Me- Mexican food made it as far east as Chicago. Uh, you know, in Boston, you, you'd find great Central American food or, or Caribbean food, but no Mexican food. Oh, I find that interesting, the topic about food, especially um, where you grew up. So you pretty much, like, what were the things that were common for you to eat? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, because stuff that's like, yeah, uh, maybe the stuff that your grandparents or your parents are used to eating, and then did they cook that at home, and then when you guys would go out, you would eat something different? Yeah. So... Um, you know, my, both of my parents were working, right? My dad was standing up, running the practice. My mom was kind of handling the business side of it. But every night, I remember my mom making dinner. And, you know, half a week, or if not more, she would make something from, you know, Pakistan or India. So we grew That's up, cool. you know, I grew up cutting onions and frying onions and kind of understanding, uh, beginning to understand kind of how to make Indian food or Pakistani food. But then when we'd go out, You'd go out to Mexican food. You'd right. go out to, you know, whatever was good at the time. Um, and what I what I really appreciated with my parents is that they encouraged us always to try new things to, you know, they always forced us to eat everything, including like the one vegetable that I can no longer eat, which is raw zucchini. Oh, yeah. Like raw zucchini. I have never met anybody who likes raw zucchini. I like raw zucchini. You are the only person in my life. I don't know. I feel like it's just such a, it's like such a neutral thing. As long as it's like fresh and like good, it's got snap to it. I mean, we have a raw zucchini salad that's accompanied with the chicken right now. You were out of chicken tonight, but no complaints. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But really, we would eat every, my my sisters and I would eat everything on the table. And my parents knew that we did not like raw zucchini. And every night they'd serve us raw zucchini. Oh man, what a push. It was terrible. What's like a... Uh, if you were to say like a childhood memory when it comes to food of something that you really enjoyed mm. in in your home and something that you enjoyed like outside your yeah. home. Yeah. So I think uh, kind of like the staple dish that I, whenever I have, I always think of home as um, a yogurt curry. Oh. Um, and it's just a really, really simple dish of, you know, uh, um, graham flour, yogurt, turmeric, curry leaves, mustard seeds, and cumin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say over the last few years, my mom has taught me how to make it. I'm kind of working on my mix. That's cool. Um, but that's the, the dish that always takes me back home and uh, in, in eating at home. I would say the, the meal that I always remember, um, there are two meals that take me back to Salinas. One is um, this Mexican place called Rosita's, I think it was called, right in downtown Salinas, just like an old-time Mexican place. And actually, one time I had a chance to interview Joe Madden, the old uh, Cubs manager. Mm-hmm. And apparently he had played minor league baseball in, uh, in Salinas. So I opened up this interview and said, hey, Joe, you and I have something very similar in common. 
because apparently he had played a catcher for the Salinas Spurs. And I said, you know, Joe, you and I both played catcher in Salinas, California. And he looked at me, kind of gave me the side eye look, you know, seeing if I'm an athletic build. Uh, clearly I'm not. <laughs> and I said, but my, 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 my career ended at Little League. Right. Uh, but we both talked about that, that uh, Mexican restaurant. And the other thing in Salinas that I'll always talk about is that Salinas has the best bagels in the country. Whoa, that's the, a strong statement. You, it's a strong statement. Man, that's a strong statement. Strong statement. But ba- the bagel bakery, they boil their bagels. It's a, just a fantastic bagel. I love um, the conversation of food and what, like, what connects you to a certain place yeah. and a certain time and like how easily it could take you back to that place and that time, especially like younger when you're growing up. So then you moved to Boston. Um, tell me a little bit about that experience. So I'll give you a food uh, story in Boston that uh, I don't know if I ever shared publicly. So you know, I just moved to Boston, obviously growing up in California, and I go to a, a sub a sub spot, right? And I walk in and... All know, kinds of subs or just cold cuts or what? I can't even remember. It was, I think it was... I can't even remember. Mm. Right? But I just remember the guy behind the counter. He looked like me. South Asian guy, you know, kind of like straight black hair. And um, he starts speaking with a Caribbean accent. And oh. it blew my mind. Interesting. Because I never heard anybody <coughs> speak with a Trinidadian accent oh, right. who was from who looked South Asian. Right. And I was like, okay. And it's freezing outside. And it was it was kind of like the, 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 the mind bending experience for me in Boston of okay, I'm not in California. This for is sure. a, this is a completely different level of diversity. Um, so it was, it was kind of fun. So how long were you in Boston for? So I was in Boston for 10 years. And what I did is the uh, master's in public health program. And then I worked for the city of Boston doing environmental work and for two big health centers in the Dorchester neighborhood where I got to kind of know the Vietnamese community, the Haitian community, uh, the Irish community in, in Boston. And then I got into immigration in uh, 2003. And that's when I ran the statewide immigrant rights coalition mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. And that's you know really been kind of my my career trajectory since then is kind of working on immigration issues. So the, um, I guess 2003 was like a turning point. You found like that thing that you really wanted to like hone in on and kind of focus on because now it's been what? 2003, it's been 19 Almost 20, years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me about it. Um, I think, and it's interesting because kind of going into it, I knew that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't wake up one day saying I wanted to work on immigration. And it goes back to something that I learned, at, I saw at the health centers where we did, it was a Saturday afternoon and there was this Vietnamese community and we were working with Vietnamese youth <coughs> in um, Dorchester. And we did this Saturday afternoon session where some of these, uh, where we connected some of the youth with lawyers. And what, we, what I realized in that conversation is that these Vietnamese teenagers who had kind of done some stupid teenager thing, got in a fight or whatever, right? right. And their public defender told them to plead guilty. But because they were refugees who came over, whose families came over really as boat people, mm. they were deportable. Mm. And what I realized is that, you know, these kids are just trying to make it in the U.S., deal with life. And it was our immigration system that was so fucked up that it was going to turn around and deport them because of a honest teenage mistake that so many of us make. And, you know, that stuck with me when I just realized that, okay, this, there's something fundamentally wrong with this system. And it it was kind of under my, you know, in the background, if you will. And when I was fortunate enough to get the job to run the Immigrant Rights Coalition, I just realized that, you know, immigration policy is one of those issues that 
it touches people's lives in all nearly a real-time fashion right right because if immigration policy changes tomorrow morning by tomorrow afternoon somebody's life is completely different mm-hmm. and uh, I just feel every single day kind of dumb lucky to work on this issue right I mean when I mean it's been 20 years how old were you when that started in 2003 Man, so I was probably uh, 31 because I moved to D.C. and ran, moved into the national level at 35. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, you were in Boston for another four years. Yep. And then yep. you moved to D.C. Yep. I find it really interesting because as someone that comes from, a, you know, a culture that obviously fled a country. Right. And then my parents and my grandparents came, like, way before I was born. And then I'm, I was fortunate enough to be born here. You know, perspective is super interesting, right? Like, I don't really know if... Uh, yeah, they'll let me know when they're ready for another one. Um, I don't really know... Like, the focus on immigration, for me, is more about, like, what my people went through and, like, what they're going through now. But it really was never, like, the policy of immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I've listened to some of your stuff since obviously I wanted to be somewhat prepared which Nick never says he says that I never prepare which I did prepare I did prepare well, yeah whatever no, hold on. I, I, there is something I want to say about this okay so uh, and I'm sorry uh, Mike wasn't here when this was explained the reason why I've uh, abandoned my post is that uh, Alan over here is a Belen graduate so I'm sorry the producer is absent for this uh, entire episode cool. um, but but thanks for coming but, but <laughs> Before going up late and you know setting up late, yeah, but you know you came. Well, while I was setting up, uh, I was over here setting up microphones, and uh, eighth grade basketball MVP Michael Beltran emerged from the other side of this wall and told me that he had been listening to a podcast of yours. <laughs> this has never happened. Michael has never so much as like checked somebody's Instagram <laughs> before an interview. So. I, 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 I'm torn between these two experiences of like a podcast Mike prepared for uh, and jibber jabbering with Alan back here. But right. it is being recorded, though. It yeah, is. So okay, I'll, I'll, I'll so get to it. You can check back. Yeah. You could check back. It's fine. It's fine. Right, that's, it, that's it for me. Well, I mean, just in listening to some of the things that I heard earlier um, and the other day, it's like the way that immigration is looked at is almost like I feel like I don't. I don't know totally where to put my emotions towards yeah. it, right? Because it's almost like each administration is looking at it from a different angle, and the angle is always to benefit their what they're trying to prove. Yeah. And I think that that's very sad, right? Like, and as someone that's in it uh, much more, you know, than any of us are really, it just feels like it's so like hollow, you know? Because like the, I think that the subject is much deeper. I mean, people are trying to provide opportunities for families. They're trying to flee anything, so many things. And over here we have politics and administrations looking at it as more of opportunity-driven than, like, purpose-driven, you know? That's a great way to put it. And for someone that's, I mean, been doing it for 20-plus years, and I'm, you know, it's got to be a very personal experience for you. It's kind of, it's interesting the way that I, I heard you speak about it because, you know, you look at it from a very, like, factual, intellectual standpoint. But, I mean, I have a hard time, like, 86ing emotions. Like, taking the emotions out of the equation for me would be very difficult because coming from the background that my family comes from, it's, like, incredibly emotional. You know, like, we, f- we fled uh, so many things, you know, um, 
religious persecution, political persecution, just like the, the whole thing across the board. And on the other hand, you have administrations looking at it like, well, this is going to benefit what we talked about at this one time. So this will work. Yeah. So um, one of the things I'm always really clear about is that I am not an immigrant. And as an advocate, that makes my job really, really easy. Mm -hmm. So I work with a lot of folks in the advocacy community who they themselves are immigrants who are undocumented immigrants who are fa whose families are undocumented. Right. So I always really try to understand the courage that they have to hold on to to be able to kind of engage in this conversation because it's it's so deeply personal. Right. And I imagine it's it's very similar for yourself um, because of the you know the community that you grew up in, grew up in and just the ongoing conversation about Cuba and what right. is happening, right? Um, but for me, I. I for better or for worse, I, I, I create this emotional distance, mm -hmm. um, which I just have to be honest about, right? Um, but I think you, you put it really well and really importantly in that it's not about opportunity, it's about purpose. And what is the purpose of our immigration policy and the folks who are trying to, who are, you know, implementing our immigration policy? And right now, I would argue that the purpose of our immigration system, by and large, is to keep people out as opposed right. to welcome people in. Right. And that trickles down all the way from the federal level to the state level to the local level, unless, quite frankly, a city or a state says, okay, well, we're going to intentionally do something very different. Mm. So what we're always trying to figure out is, okay, how do we help Americans, and more specifically, conservative and modern Americans, who, see, who have honest questions about these issues, so think differently about immigrants and immigration so that they, they don't approach, uh, approach it from a a, a a position of fear or a posture of fear and that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of awkward conversations um, but I feel like if we're ever going to fix a system so that it actually operates with a sense of moral purpose then we've got to help Americans understand why immigrants and immigration are a net benefit to them and their families uh, and that's a lot of what we do with the National Immigration Forum and that is really honestly what I think that ultimately is going to get this issue into a much better place. Well, I found it incredibly fascinating because, um, like, I think me media is a very interesting thing in general, right? I mean, there's so many different forms of media. Some weird people would say that what we're doing is media right now. I don't totally agree, mm -hmm. but, like, media says one thing. So then I was just listening to... Uh, uh, some of the things that you were saying earlier, and it's basically the opposite of what everyone else is saying, right? Which is that we need to grow right. as a country, right? To keep the country moving, we need to grow at a certain pace. And it's incredible the factual information that I heard that I had never heard before. I had absolutely never heard before. Yeah. Talking about like age demographics, the average age of people in the country. And I was like, man, that's true. The average age of a human is 58, yeah. right? In yeah. the United States, yeah. I was like, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And then the fact that like the workforce is going to be at a certain place. And then also talking about the Biden administration, what they want to say, and then what the actual thing that is happening. Um, yeah, I just found it very fascinating because those are all facts that I think that for the day-to-day -day person, because, and I don't think it's for anyone's fault. I think it's because people live in that day-to-day -day grind, mm -hmm. you know, as we're all very aware. Like, we're just trying to 
I guess, I mean, survive is a bad word, but just trying to get through yeah, and, to, right. and do our thing. Right. Like, facts like that need to be spoken to the world. But so, so there's a paper that we wrote about a year ago. It's called Room to Grow. And uh, I got to give a, a lot of credit to my colleague, Danilo Zach, who did the heavy lift on this. But the, the calculation that we made is that in order for us to maintain the current ratio of retirement, uh, um, of adult to retirement age to working age adults, and that current ratio is about 3.5 for working age adults to retirees, we've got to increase legal immigration by 37%, which is only 370,000 people. In a country of, what, 350 million people? That's not a lot of folks. Right. Um, and what we've seen over the years between COVID and the previous administration is that number of immigration of immigrants coming to the U.S. really dropping pretty precipitously. So we're on a trajectory that we as a country are, go- are going to be struggling to find the workers in order to maintain our retirement system, sustain our retirement system, which is all fine and dandy and in terms of kind of a big picture uh, uh, data set that we can talk about. But what does that mean to actually to a person and their lives? Mm-hmm. So the way we've been thinking about this is that if you are 55 years old and you want to retire in 10 years or 12 years, you've got to think ahead, right? Either you are saving enough money through your 401k that you can retire on your own. You don't have to worry about where Social Security is going to be. Or you've got to figure out and come to terms with the idea that Social Security is not going to be solvent unless we have enough working age adults. Right. So I feel like what we've got to do is a much better job of bringing that big message down to somebody's personal life. And please remember, that person may or may not want immigrants in their community, in their town, in their city for a variety of reasons. So we've got to, we've got to speak to their self-interest. Um, and that's, that's where a lot of the tension comes up in all of this. Well, I, and, and again, I, just because like me, the kind of human being that I am, and like everything for me is like very viscerally emotional, like yeah. my food and my job and all those things like I'm a hopeless romantic about all of it and something that I admire is when someone could just give like actual facts as and and remove the emotion from it and I think that like what we deal with from an immigration standpoint a lot is because and like I was telling you before we started recording was you know I lived in Virginia for four and a half years and you know I mean it's very different <laughs> yeah. it, it was very different people's perception on um everyone else was very different so talking about like telling those kinds of people that you actually need a larger workforce so maybe immigration is a good idea for you for your future i could only imagine what that conversation would be like you know because i've had conversations with those kind of people and i'm like i don't know if you're totally going to get anything let alone the fact that this is a much deeper subject than just the fact that you don't like people you know like your livelihood long term i guess uh really is dependent on creating a stronger workforce and if you create that through immigration it's kind of like what you're talking about so so a lot of this i think comes to speaking to somebody's values framework so you know look at the restaurant industry you know when you look at their national data it will say up to nationally 10 percent of the restaurant workforces immigrants are undocumented in larger urban areas some estimates are up to 40 percent i would agree with that right yeah um but that's an economic uh, argument that I'm making, which will make sense to a certain kind of slice of the American public. But a lot of other folks who are going to look at this and say, okay, well, you know, you as a restaurant owner are looking for somebody to, you know, you're going to pay them less money. Um, that's going to, or a business owner, they're going to, that's going to be their assumption. So then what we're trying to say is that, okay, in addition to the economic benefit, are you a person of faith? Mm-hmm. Right? And so what does your faith 
ask you to think about welcoming the stranger. So a lot of what we learned about in terms of engaging conservative American is to try to think, try to create a conversation so that they have an opportunity to not just learn about the issue, because it's much more than learning about the issue, but it's actually discussing the issue and having a dialogue about the issue in the context of their church or their synagogue or their mosque or their temple. Um, because that's where I, we have found that's those are the spaces where you can start to really take some of the, the anxiety out of these questions. Um, you may not get all the anxiety out, but it's hard to, if you're a person of faith, it is hard to argue with what the Bible is telling you. Mm-hmm. If you're a Christian, um, and I mean, look, I'm not saying this because you know I am a person of faith, but I, you know, I'm very clear about that. But I am saying this because I have deep respect for people of faith, and I really work hard to try to understand what is important to them and how to create conversations and spaces that are important to them in their communities. I think that the, I mean, faith is obviously like a good. <clears throat> Because there's a lot of commonality through all different types of culture to understand what right. faith means, right? Because right? like, right. faith means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? right? I think all, in essence, are kind of like along the same line, um, but they just could have different names, right? Right. So, but I also think that there's like a like a moral ethics involved here. That it's, and again, going back to like those four and a half years that I lived. In a place that I never thought (laughs) after I spent four years there, I was like, it was a very eye-opening experience for me because, you know, the things that I heard, the things that I saw were things that I never thought that I would hear and never think that I would see, right? Because I'm from a city that's like a melting pot of everything. Yeah, Miami is a, it's a, it's different from any place in the U.S. It's just like you can, you can meet a person from anywhere any like any day of the week right and it's just like every other day and you don't think about it and then when you go to certain parts of the united states it's definitely not like that you know and i think just growing up in that environment that everything was like very all-inclusive uh changed my perception just overall because for me people are people and humans are humans it doesn't really matter where you come from you know and it's not like that everywhere so the the idea like just the conversation of immigration for me has always been an emotional like pull yeah right and again listening to some of the things that i've heard you talk about it's just very factual you know and and i think because i always lean towards like i want people to have like understand what i'm talking about like the moral basis of this right but then when you talk about the moral basis of something and then you give them factual information behind it it's like so how do you refute that I mean, and that, that's the thing. It's like, um, I mean, this is what I love about the work that we do is that we really try to combine the facts with the values. Um, you know, and I, I've said this for a long time is that, you know, immigration for the, mo- for the majority of Americans is not about politics or policy. It's ultimately about culture and values and mm-hmm. how the country and their respective communities are changing. So how do we help people understand those changes so that they don't see them as a threat? They see them as an opportunity. And, you know, if we can figure that out at a very local level, much less at a national level, then we get closer and closer to actually, you know, having the country that I'd like to believe that we all want to live in. What is the country you think we all like? Like, I, I mean, yeah, that's, I was, I, when I said that, I was like, damn, I left myself open here. Yeah, that was why. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. I think for me, 
I mean, I would say that the country I would like to live in is just a place that people are people. You know, like, there are no lines. It's just like, I don't know. I, when I look at people, I don't see anything but just another human being, yeah. right? And, like, someone, everyone, everyone along their path is living a different day. Mm-hmm. And they're living a different journey. It doesn't matter where you come from, right? And you have an opportunity to learn something from everyone. And this is why I love food so much. Yeah. Growing up, I didn't have a ton of money. Um, my, you know, my parents worked very hard. You know, we went through tough times, whatever. How I really learned about food was through different cultures and understanding and going to eat and eating their food and reading about their food. You learn so much about culture and it's beautiful. Yeah. It really is. It, there's a huge like uh, uh, there's a lot of romance there because you could learn so much about why they do what they do and why they love what they love and it's like it's incredible to me yeah. that to me is really the country that I want to live in it's like those things like we, we are we are crossing lines to understand things about different people and where they come from and there's so much history there that it just gives you so much more I don't like a mental bandwidth yeah. to like be able to do things that maybe you thought you couldn't do so I, I got I think food and the production of food is one of the ways that a lot of folks in rural parts, of, rural parts of the country, are seeing the value of immigrants and immigration. So I've got this book coming out uh, in March called "Crossing Borders: The Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants," and one of my final chapters focuses in on the story of Twin Falls, Idaho. Mm. You know, Twin Falls is a small city of about fifty thousand people, which in two thousand fifteen was the kind of epicenter of some really, really virulent anti-immigrant, anti-refugee uh, rhetoric that was brought on by Trump. It was brought on by Alex Jones and Infowars, Infowars <laughs> and Breitbart. It was all the all puppeteers, the, puppets, uh, and clowns. It was badness, like, exp- yeah. terrible. It was just terrible. But it was really interesting as I have gotten to know Twin Falls and the community there because, you know, you have a, a thriving refugee resettlement effort led by uh, Zeze, uh, um, I'm blanking on his last name, I'm sorry, but he himself was a refugee from Rwanda. Mm. Um, So he came into this job with an incredible experience as a refugee himself. But then he ended up working with a city leadership, and then of all people, the dairymen of Idaho. So the dairymen in Twin Falls, Idaho, which is southern Idaho, they have a disproportionate impact, not just on the economy. I mean, there are more cows in Idaho than people, right? Is there really? Yeah, there's. It's it that's is, fact. That is a fact. It is. It, that's incredible. It vacillates. So uh, California, it's usually like Wisconsin or New York or California are top two or three, and Idaho is always kind of top three uh, wow. in terms of milk dairy production. It's wild. So, and the dairymen of Idaho, they're not like shrinking liberals, right? They are like li- true red conservatives, but they, based on their stories as dairymen whose families immigrated to the U.S. from uh, 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 Denmark because they were pushed out by World War II, they saw what was happening to Latino immigrants in the nineteen in the early 2000s because of the Bush administration's enforcement actions. And then what Trump was doing in you know the last administration, they said, you know what, we've got to step up. So now in southern Idaho, in Twin Falls, you have the Idaho Dairymen's Association partnering with Chobani, partnering with cheese producers, partnering with law enforcement and faith leaders saying, you know what, we as a conservative community are going to welcome immigrants and refugees to Twin Falls. And they have, up to this point, successfully pushed out the Breitbart's and the Infowars elements. It's always a battle, right? Mm -hmm. 
But it all came down to kind of that shared culture of being on a dairy farm, milking the cows twice a day, and that dairy farmer whose grandparents immigrated from Denmark standing shoulder to shoulder with the Mexican immigrant to make sure those cows are milked to understand, okay, what is the commonality? And I mean, you're right. It's kind of it, food at the end of the day was a common thread there. Yeah. And um, there are those kinds of stories across the country. So to answer your question, kind of what's the America that I think um, that I believe in, it's all those tensions and all those complexities boil down to people working shoulder to shoulder to get through something and saying, you know what, I'm going to support you. I, I think the way and like the analogy that I always see in my head when I talk about like the country that I, I pine to live in is one that we all sit at the same table and we all break bread together. Yep. Right. Obviously to use like my industry as an example, like the depth of food and what it does for like touching a human being's soul can go so much further than like, uh, the visceral like everyday media just like push of trash that we see daily right and that's why i think food is like the ultimate community you know like it doesn't matter who you are where you're from like i mean you you grew up eating mexican food right right and how incredible is that right you know and it's something that's part of your story as a human being and i find that beautiful I, I guess I would take it one step further is that it's not only the food that you and your staff cook every night. And I mean, it was a freaking incredible meal tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but it's also how you as the leader of your restaurant are treating your staff who are developing your staff mm. and ensuring that they're the leaders in the industry of tomorrow. Yeah. So in D.C., next time you're, you're in D.C., we'll, we'll go to this restaurant. It's called Muchas Gracias. It's owned by a friend of mine, Christian uh, Irabian. And um, it's a fantastic restaurant. It started as a pop-up during COVID, right? And now it's just a booming Love enterprise. That. But even better is that he started an effort kind of as a side hustle, which is now kind of becoming his full-time gig called um, Hospitality Humans, where he is really intentionally putting together programs to help restaurateurs support their immigrant staff. Mm. So for him, he owns it, right? So he said, okay, I hired Luis and a, 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 one of, a co-worker there, who started as, I think, a line cook and a dishwasher, and now they are, in essence, are managing his restaurant. But it, from his perspective, it's it's more than the food that we eat as, at his restaurant. It's about changing the industry. Right. And, uh, I mean, I think that's the opportunity that the food industry has when it comes down to this really, really um, controversial issue. It's not just who's serving your food, but who is leading in the production of your food and that you see kind of on the other side of the counter saying, you know what, I'm making... I, what what I, what you enjoy tonight is what I make. What I love about um, something that has like enamored me and like attached me to this industry that I'm in for the entirety of it is like the personalities involved. Yeah, and all the walks of life. Like tonight, your meal was cooked by uh, somebody from the Bahamas, someone from Argentina, Argentina, someone from Venezuela. Uh, someone from mexico and me yeah and that was that was the entire staff today yeah and that to me is a beautiful thing yep because that is one team working for one goal and it doesn't matter where they're from who they are it just it's like to me that's incredible and this takes place not just in amazing big city miami this takes place all across the freaking country everywhere 
everywhere and i find that like it's just to me it's one of the very special parts of like the industry that i'm in is that you can give somebody an opportunity that maybe came from a tough background an immigrant somebody who struggled to get papers and that has papers and whatever it may be in their whole situation and now they have the opportunity to grow within a system as long as it's a nurturing proper system right of someone that wants to guide them along the way and i and that's really something that i find beautiful about like the the food industry and you know like to kind of go back to something we were talking about before talking about how like the workforce has been shortened yep right something i find interesting if we continue to shorten it for much longer the long-term ramifications of kind of like my industry and so many industries like mine in 20 years they're going to suffer super hard yep right because there's not going to be those people that have been training under people for a long time um because they came from all time like all walks of life you know they could be immigrants from anywhere around the world and we're not giving them that opportunity now so in 20 years from now it's going to be worse than it is now if we continue down this path you know and and i'm i'm faced with this subject every day you know like people documented undocumented from a certain place don't speak a language doesn't matter you know like for me work ethic is always everything um and the, the want to be better is always everything but if we continue to go down this path my industry and so many like mine, I feel like it's going to be very, very tough in 20 years. You know, a lot of times in the D.C. policy debate, there's a lot of conversation about kind of the, well, we need high skill immigrants, you know, engineers, doctors, etc. I'm like, you know what? We need the skilled engineer. We need the skilled cook. We need the skilled farm worker. And they all have high skills. And, and so we really try to, I never, I rarely, I try really hard not to use high skill versus low skill uh and i think that that's great because you know like something i was going to say was why does immigration have to benefit you yeah why can't it just benefit like what's right and what's wrong yeah yeah you know and i I think that i find that fascinating and something that i really appreciate about just you being here and then listening to some of your work and being able to talk to you is just like this isn't an issue of what should benefit you it's an issue of like what's right and wrong if it ends up benefiting you then great right and, and I mean, I agree with you, but I think the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, again, kind of going back to the research that I did and, you know, another town that I wrote about was uh, Storm Lake, Iowa. And you look at the history of Storm Lake, Iowa and kind of rural Iowa, and it was kind of, you know, you know, the core of Iowa and so much of rural America was just hollowed out because of the debt crisis, of the 1980s and kind of the globalization and so what has happened over time is that a lot of Americans have come to fear the Mexican in Mexico as much as the Mexican next door. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I do think we need to find the balance between making the case that immigrants and immigration are a net benefit to you as well as the right thing to do. And that's why it's that we really try to kind of toe that line between finding the economic fact-based case as well as that values-based reason of, okay, this is the right thing to do. And, you know, I've always found that if you just do one or the other, then people will often say, well, okay, yes, it may be the right thing to do, but I know so-and-so who lost their job because of immigration, right? And so it's 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 such a complicated issue, so you can't, there's no one answer. Mm-hmm. There's always a lot of ways to say no to it, right? 
but there's, there are not many ways to say yes if you've got a lot of questions. When people say that, is it is it always financial based? Like someone lost their job because someone was making was willing to make less for that same job. So, some I think people oftentimes kind of conflate the the question of whether or not an immigrant is taking a job for less wage, mm-hmm. or an immigrant is coming to the U.S. to take a service, a public service that you know, quote my tax dollars paying for. So it's always a combination of kind of jobs and programs that people feel like are being taken. So a lot of times I think people are led to believe that it's a zero sum game, and uh, you know they're not realizing what employers are paying. You know, going back to that dairyman uh, example, I mean, they're paying well, well, well above kind of minimum wage in Idaho. And it's because that's what the market demands. Right. Right. And I imagine that's the case here in your industry. All right. Oh, no. Fly away, Sharpie. Um, Yeah, I mean, our our industry has changed a lot. I think our industry is in a, uh, as a business owner, and also as like a chef that lived the day to day and I was a line cook and a fry cook and I did all the things yeah. in the kitchen, like the, the industry is in a much better place than it was five years ago. And I say that from the standpoint of the employee and maybe not the standpoint of the employer, but I'm okay because I've lived both. And I think like the true um, mission of our company completely is to be competitive, like wage wise from top to bottom, you know, and, and, uh, Usually, like when the people, when you're competitive wage-wise from top to bottom, the people that suffer the most are the ones at the top, right? Because the people at the bottom are making more money. Yep. And to me, that's totally cool because the team is what matters. That's the only way that we're successful, yep. you know? Um, I feel like this is going to be good for us long-term. You know, what What? What I worry about is, and, and honestly, I didn't think about it as much as I'm thinking about it right now this second until I I heard you speak on it, which is we're losing a certain amount of workforce. And if we continue to lose that, what does that mean for us long term? I mean, it it means that we're going to lose a large portion of our workforce for a long time. Yeah. And we're never going to gain it back. Because, I mean, you you I I just have to imagine that you are providing an incredible amount of knowledge and expertise to the staff. They're working next to you. I mean, I'm sure they're teaching. I hope teaching. so. <laughs> but you're probably also learning from them, too. A hundred percent. Right? So there is this, I mean, you're investing in them. They're investing in you. Yeah. And that you want to make good on that investment. Right. right. I think that uh, a big thing that I've always talked about, like, in kitchens specifically, and I think overall in, like, the food and beverage world is it's uh, creativity through collaboration. And it's, like, a lot of, like, we need to learn from each other so we can, so one, we can best fit everyone's strengths and avoid everyone's weaknesses. So that way we can put out the best product for our guests. So tell me, if you don't mind, the conversation that you were having with the woman from the kitchen before we've clicked on, because yeah. I felt like that was one of those conversations. And where was she from? She's uh, she's a Brit um, and uh, she's incredible. She's our number two here in this restaurant. And... Um, it's funny because the number one is uh, Mexican, the number two is a Brit, and the number three is, oh, he'll be mad if I don't remember. Uh, he's Hispanic somehow. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a Hispanic. And um, he's been here for like five years. That's why he'd be mad that I forgot. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, like together we, we talk about food, we put food together, and we work through issues. Does it need to be stronger here? What was lacking? And it's like... It is a conversation that, like, I lean on them as much as they lean on me, 
you yeah, know, that, I mean, that's what I picked up in that forty-five right. second conversation over it. Yeah. Right, and and it was like, um, for instance, that dish is a little bit of a. So, it's a little annoying because I feel like it's so strong, but it's just not where it needs to be. So, I think all three of us are pretty annoyed right now because we just can't. We haven't figured out like where where it's lacking, but it's going to take all three of us to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, and that's really what I find incredibly special about really good kitchens is I think that everyone that's very good checks their ego at the door and they all collectively work together. And what I find incredible about that is that it doesn't matter where you're from. Yeah. This is the, fo- this is the focus. The focus is what's on the plate and it could be from wherever. Cause our food is kind of weird. It's, it's based in French technique, but it's, there's Spanish influence, there's Cuban influence, there's Mexican, there's all kinds of influence from everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, really Miami is the landscape and we use our produce and blah, 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 that, that what, pretty much what we talk about every day. But I find that like really, really special because Ashley's a good example. Like she was the last addition to the team and she came out of left field out of nowhere and she was a beast and uh, she just moved from North Carolina and, you know, she's got a heavy accent. She's a little brash because she's from where she's from and <laughs> the Brits yeah. right but she got along with the team swimmingly and and it's it's just awesome like and, and I think that's really why I love to cook very interesting food and very good food and I love to um, run a very interesting and good restaurant but really it's the people that make it incredibly special yeah and the people are from everywhere they're literally from everywhere. So what's the question that you, you know, when you're sitting down with somebody for the first time and you, you get a sense, okay, this is somebody I want to work with, you know, what are your first couple of questions you ask them? It really depends on the person. Yeah. Right? Like, it really, I could ask something, like, ridiculous is, like, what do you watch on TV mm-hmm. to, like, did you read comic books as a kid? Did you ever draw? Were you part of a sports team? If you were part of a sports team, what position did you play? Why did you play that sport? You know, because all sports are different, right? Right. And, but sports say a lot about how you can work on a team. Like, if you were a tennis player, right, and you only did singles, then you're probably not a team player. Yeah. Right? If you're a golfer, probably not a team player either. I'm a terrible golfer. I'm a terrible <laughs> golfer either. You put me at Top Golf with a couple drinks, I'm having a good time, but I'm not really like a You're good the best golfer, golfer ever. <laughs> right? right? The screen may not say that, but I'll think that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it all really depends on the person. Yeah. Like, so... What do you like about food? Why do you like that about food? What chefs do you follow? We're super old school, like in our approach. So if nobody, if I'm sitting with someone and they have an opportunity to kind of be on the management side, um, if they don't really follow or understand old school chef ideology, like uh, the French brigade system and like those chefs that, you know, the Marco Pierre Whites of the world, the Elaine Ducasse's of the world, Carems, like the very old school stuff. They probably aren't going to fit here. They yeah. could fit somewhere else within the company, but maybe not this one specifically. So, you know, it's always different with everyone. And I also, and I'm a little strange in my approach with like new employees too, because like I'll, you know, if it's like a management position, I'll ask them to meet me at like a random coffee shop that I know it's going to be very like busy and very loud. And uh, may, I want to see if it makes them uncomfortable. I want to see how they react in that situation. I want to see, you know. Yeah. And do you feel like you're asking the same questions across? cultures and you know, kind of where people are from for sure yeah i mean because ultimately this is your team yeah i mean for me it doesn't really matter like where they're from yeah. i usually i always talk about food and like what they enjoy to eat and what yeah. they enjoy to cook because 
I find that exciting. So I'd like to know. Yeah. Um, but it's really, it, it, it is the same across the board. I never, and it, it goes from like where they're from, gender, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, like that, that stuff to me is like, do you love this or don't you? Yeah. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter where you're from, you're not going to make it. You know, it's <laughs> you're just, not going to enjoy this. <laughs> it's just not, it's just not going to be like the place that you want to be. Yeah. You know, so, but man, I, I, I find it, um, so fascinating. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So now you're a, a book in March. That's yep. exciting. You're excited. You I don't look so. excited. Right I don't now. know. You it, don't look very excited. I, you know, it's, it's weird. It's like, um, so this is my second book. The first book, I was absolutely miserable um, after. I, I loved writing it. I loved writing the second one. I mean, I love kind of like sitting in my, um, kind of on my desk and just kind of in my own little head and kind of cranking words onto the paper. But it's hard for me to talk about because ultimately it's kind of it's your own work, right? Right. Um, but I mean, what I, so with this book, what I did is I tried to think about, you know, what does the global migration debate mean to policy? So I looked at the Syrian refugee crisis, how that was weaponized by uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, how that led to Brexit, how that in many ways led to Trump, and then how Trump weaponized migration from Central America to really harden our immigration system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately, okay, what do we need to do as a country to find some sort of reconciliation? And the point that I try to make in the book is that reconciliation is not going to begin in Washington, D.C. It's not going to begin with the United States Congress. Dysfunction is just too high. It's going to begin in places like Twin Falls. It's going to begin in places like Storm Lake, Iowa. Um, it's going to begin because evangelical women are saying, you know what? The way that we as a country are treating immigrants is wrong. So how can I think about this differently? And it was ultimately I, I hope to, to not just paint a picture of everything that's wrong with the system, but begin to paint a picture of, okay, what can we do to change it? I mean, it seems more like uh, what you're talking about is it seems like more of a grassroots effort to the change of a mindset. Correct. As opposed to change of policy. Right, right. Because like I said, it's not about policy and politics. It's about culture and values. And the way that culture and values are debated and negotiated and talked about, you know, in a, in a fundamental way is locally. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's all the noise at the national level, and that, of course, informs the debate. But it's always going to come down to whether or not you and I can sit down and say, okay, we agree to agree, we agree, to agree on A, but we're going to agree to disagree on B. And we're going to be okay about that. I find like the agree to disagree part is the one of the most difficult. Would you like another? Sure, why not? Two Thank more. You. Yeah. Yeah. You guys want another? Yeah. Yeah. Four more. <laughs> yeah. Four more. Um. I think where we suffer is the agree to disagree. Yeah. You know, and it, like, I'm okay with people disagreeing with me. Yeah. It's totally fine as long as I feel confident in where I'm at because that's like. I won't say it's what makes me happy, but I feel like that's the conclusion that I've come to. And hopefully, at this age, I feel like I can come to a conclusion, okay? And your conclusion can change. Exactly. You're You're, not allowed to change in these days. Your your conclusion can change. Yeah. And it's okay to accept being wrong. Yeah. And I think that that's like, um, I learned that a lot in, man... Uh, so we opened when I was 29 turning 30. Really? Yeah. So How old are you now? 36. Um, and like it was, it was a hard learning time for me because I had never learned 
to be so very vulnerable. Yeah. Right? And I think that when you accept failure or you accept a conclusion that may be wrong and you say that out loud, you make yourself very vulnerable. Yep. But how strong can you stand behind saying, I'm okay with being wrong? I'm okay that uh, I may have fucked this up and it's time to move on from that. And then you learn from it. But see, in that process, oftentimes these days in particular, when somebody wants to change their mind, I feel like the rest of us will pile on and shame them for oh, changing yeah, shame. their mind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, then people are like, oh, fuck that. I'm not going to tell you I'm changing my mind. I'm right. just going to retrench and, you know, I'm going to yeah. dig in. So, it's, you know, when it comes to immigration, we often, we often try to think about, okay, how do you create the spaces? So there's, there's a kind of a, a body of literature that says there's an in-group of people and there's an out-group of people. So your in-group are folks who think like you, often look like you, and believe what you do. Mm-hmm. And the out-group are the folks who are the diametric opposite. Right. So these groups are set up so that one is against the other. Um, and what we've tried to think about is, okay, how do we establish in-groups that are very similar to the in-groups you're leaving? I'll give you a precise example, right? So that first in-group is Republican, it's conservative, it is uh, um, anti-immigrant. Right. Right? Okay. So then let's create another in-group that is Republican and conservative, but pro-immigrant. And it's interesting because if you can create that second in-group, you're giving people a place to go without asking them to change their political or their religious identity. Sure. And oftentimes what I find from my liberal friends is that Okay, if somebody is you know Republican, conservative, and anti-immigrant, and they become pro-immigrant, that means that they are Democrat, liberal, and pro-immigrant. No, mm-hmm. you cannot assume that somebody's going to change their political identification this day and age. That's just it's too far a bridge. May or may not change down the road, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to provide people a different Thank way to you. think about immigration. Thank you. You're the best. Um, and cocktail it's, angel. <laughs> cheers again. Hey, cheers. And, and, you know, it's that it's a subtle difference, but it's an incredibly important difference. Mm-hmm. I find like um, I think when I try to because I find subjects like immigration, human beings in general, like I try to and I know you can't do that. I can do that. Yeah. But like I remove political where you try to stand politically yeah. completely from that because it's more of like. I find it's a it's a human being thing. It's right. a moral thing. It's like it has nothing to me. For me, it has nothing to do with politics. For you, I know it does not. Right? Political parties are, uh, you know, policy, so on and so forth. How yep. things go through DC, and it's just like a very weird system, yep. right? And it's sad because I don't like something that has to do with a human being's well being shouldn't really have to do with a system. You know, it, it should just have to do with like morality. But I, I, um, I don't, I don't like envy, kind of like the journey that you're on because yeah. it, it's it's definitely an uphill battle because people are so like so deeply entrenched in their stance because it could be something that they've lived with since like before they were born. Yep. Like the day that they were born, they were just supposed to be Republican, or the day they were born, they were supposed to be a Democrat. So I mean, this is the thing. It's like, what we found is that, um. We've created these opportunities, and, and this isn't done in any sort of a mercenary way or any way that's disrespectful. It is really done, and we really try to do this in a way that's authentic and really tries to understand and respect people's values. But oftentimes we run across and we engage men and women who 
have told us, I had no idea that you were out there and you thought about and you could help me think about immigration in a different way. Because oftentimes, you know, folks are just, they feel very, very alone because they're in these in-groups where, you know, the norm is to be very, very anti-immigrant. And they want to break with that norm. And if you say opposite, you were ostracized. Totally ostracized. You were ostracized you're and you're just, and it's it's crazy to yeah. me. Just because you have a difference of opinion. Yeah. People, the thing is that people don't have the mental bandwidth anymore to have that conversation. So what happens for that person who wants to go someplace else, if they go someplace else and they say, I want to think about this differently, they get ostracized by their friends and family, and then they get shamed by the left, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they're this is not worth it. Right, right, right. Yeah. But so from our perspective, we're like, this is completely worth it. Because if you lend your voice and become a part of and, and, and start to find a different community, we're not asking you to join the left. We're just asking you to become a part of a conversation that says, you know what? We as a country can chart a different path. Mm-hmm. And when we can create those moments, I mean, it's it's incredibly inspirational. Yeah, uh, because it just kind of gives you hope in humanity in some in a lot of ways. Right. Well, hope. I mean, hope is the biggest word, right? Right. It's like if you can, maybe we align on seventy five percent of the issues, but if I differ from you in twenty five percent, and maybe I can help you along the way to maybe change your perspective. I don't want to change your opinion completely, right? But just so you can understand my viewpoint, right? All that is 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 good old school conversation. Exactly. And people just don't have it anymore because you have to like. Dumb it down to like 140 characters, right? Isn't yeah. that what they have on Twitter now? 140? I can't remember the number. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nick, producer, yeah, how yeah. many characters are you allowed on Twitter? Uh, is it still 140? I think it's more than 140. 280. 280? They doubled it? Wow. 280. It's a that. crazy world. Now you're given 280 characters <laughs> to like really get your opinion out there. Yeah, so, and, and then again, it, it's like... Uh, it's not a conversation anymore because right. people, again, and this is why I find the table of food to be so important. Yeah. People are breaking bread and having a conversation about like, we could totally differ, yeah, but we could still share a meal. So have you seen, um, have you heard of uh, uh, Patty Yinich? I have not. So she a, has a PBS show. and um, Oh, I love PBS shows. Oh, man. I love them. So she is fantastic. She's also based in D.C., but she just did a... a, a a documentary a series of, of episodes where I mean her her entire purpose as a chef is to take the viewer to Mexico amazing um, and it's amazing I mean, she's done has great cookbooks and just just really really charismatic on on the screen but uh, her most recent uh, series of episodes is really just focused on the border region mm-hmm. and what is happening along the US Mexico border particularly in Texas and she just tells these stories of you know these communities that are divided by a border but their histories had no border Mm-hmm. And their food, therefore, has no border. Uh, and, you know, how the food on one side of the border is similar to, you know, what is cooked and, and eaten and enjoyed on the other side. And it's just a, it's a really, really special, uh, um, you know, show on, on PBS these days. La Frontera. La Frontera. I was, this is totally off subject, but it just, uh, what your story just took me to a place that I was fortunate enough to do a seminar at the Culinary Institute of America in California. Yeah. And uh, I just bought their cookbook. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Was it good? It's a big-ass book, man. A <laughs> <laughs> lot of information. A lot of information. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I did two different talks. Um, and one of them I did with a very dear friend, Diego Oca, uh, that's a chef here at Lamar. And then another one I did with Christina Martinez, 
that's the chef from South Philly Barbacoa. She's an immigrant. She, I, I mean, she was on Chef's Table. She's got a beautiful story. And, um, you know, I was like, I felt super like outmatched, right? Because she's got this, like, she's just like such an enamoring human. Yeah. You know, like she's in, just like so sweet and like so caring. And like the connection she has with food is like incredible. So just, again, going back to the point of like talking about immigrants. So I, I think I was like first, like I did my talk first. Um, right like they put small potatoes at the beginning and then they <laughs> finish off with the big timers so I was like cool so I'm going to sit in the audience and I sat in the first yeah. row and I watched her do her thing and they only like allotted us like 20 minutes of talk time um, and she had the most beautiful presentation right yeah. like it, I don't even remember what it was that we were talking about in that one seminar because I don't remember what I spoke about because all I remember is what she did. Yeah. And she literally, like, did the old school way of making, like, masa for tortillas. Mm-hmm. And, like, the dish didn't even matter. But it's the way that she did it. I mean, it was, like, hundreds of years old. She was literally on her hands and knees making this masa. And it was, like, so romantic. And I felt so connected. Like, I was literally in the front row almost crying. Yeah. It was incredible, right? And then, you know, like, the, <laughs> I remember the... Uh, moderator was like all right so we're at 25 minutes time is passing like shut up just let her do her thing like who cares about fucking time just let her like do her thing and i just i think about it like if i didn't have that human being in my life at that one moment like i wouldn't have understood or felt so connected to something that i did not know i did not know it was made that way or like how they felt about a thing and to me, that's why I love different cultures so much because you learn so much, right? Mm-hmm. And you learn like it's so connected. So, how did you get into cooking? Ooh, um, like my, who, whose podcast is this? Yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, my uh, my grandfather and my grandmother are cooks, and my um, my grandfather had a bakery in Cuba, and um, you know, I was never like the one that was like the stories of like, yeah, I was at my grandparents' like, you know, knee like asking them to cook like I wasn't that but I would watch yeah you know and I was and I loved how much they loved to feed their family Mm -hmm. you know and that thing to me like that experience of um, being able to provide a table of people an opportunity to connect with each other and you connect with them through food I loved it so I actually went to I went to college I went to I played college football and I went to college and I had um you know, I went to school for a thing, but it really didn't matter because it, it just, I got into my first restaurant and I never left. Yeah. It was just the, the thing about, um, you know, they say when you walk into a space that you feel like it's just supposed to be for you. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. And um, on top of that, like the connection I had of the memory of my grandparents cooking and what that did for me and what that did for our family and how they were... Like, they were the ones that connected all of us, and they connected all of us, obviously, through who they are and through their food. Yeah. It's something that I'll never forget. And I, I, I hope, like, you know, that that's something that I can do for, you know, the public on a daily basis. Obviously, it's very different when it becomes a business, but, um, you know, that's that's really why I got into it. And and I, I love it. Like, I, I, I feel very connected to, very passionate, romantic, and connected to it, you mm-hmm. know? And those things, to me, it's like the the human aspect of all of that, too, 
like learning so much about people in the process and so many different types of people, even from when I was like, I don't know, I got my first restaurant job at 19, something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, a Cuban American kid living in Virginia in a mom and pop place making Brunswick stew, which I had no idea what that was mm-hmm. and biscuits with apple butter, which I had no idea what that was either. Um, when someone told me barbecue, I thought we were just making burgers, you know, <laughs> like I had no, I had no clue, uh-huh. but I learned so much, you know, and that it, it, um, I find that like exciting every day. Yeah. You know, and, and there hasn't been a day and obviously, you know, you go through that like mental, like mundane, like this is what I do. And then you have that moment, it just snaps and it's like, fuck, that's why I love this. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that that's really, you know, I got into cooking in a very, like, laissez-faire way. I'm a huge competitor, too. So, mm-hmm. like, it's in me to, like, want to be the best yeah. or try to be the best. Um, well, you're, you're doing pretty good. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're very good, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Um, still got a long way to go, but it's, like... Uh, it's really the the people, and I say this to my staff all the time, the people make the place. Yeah. And they come from everywhere. So as a leader, I find that probably the most intriguing part. So do you feel like, and I, I've always wanted to ask Christian this, um, but do you feel like that's different for, with your generation of restaurant leaders and chefs as opposed to the previous generation? Oh, man, so different. Yeah. <laughs> man, I was, I came up under some really tough guys. Yeah. Really, really tough people. I had eggs thrown at me. I had plates thrown at me. People burnt me with hot pans. Like, you know, I, I went through, like, the old school time of, like, the time frame of change. But it was, like, <laughs> the change was still happening. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and it's okay. I learned a ton there, and I learned a ton of what not to do. Yeah. Um, you know, but I really attribute a lot to, I think, the leadership aspect of why I hope I'm pretty good at my job through sports I mean team sports taught me a ton because again you have a ton of different walks of life yeah. from a like, totally different backgrounds um, and you're all like going for like a goal um, you good? yeah yeah of course uh, you're all going for like a goal and yeah. that's really the, the most important thing it doesn't yeah. matter where you're from who you are how old you are uh, if your girlfriend dumped you yesterday it doesn't matter you still yeah. gotta make food that's right. Yeah. You still got to work for the team because the team is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, come on, Rafa, hurry up. <laughs> so I think that's like uh, the food thing is really why, it, yeah. kind of, why it, it, it sticks with me so much. So let me ask you, in your time, has there been a time for you, I think, I mean, what, in the immigration world, yeah. it's been 20 years? Has there been, like, one point for you that, like, immigration and food really came together and was like, um, this was something that's really a story that should be told Hmm. uh, and something that it's like, maybe it resonates with you to this day? Yeah. Um, Huh. Immigration and food. So many stories. I'm sure. So, um... I, I mean, there's all kind, of, and maybe something that'll come up that'll be a little more localized. But um, you know, one of the people that I've, I I feel like really fortunate to get to know is Jose Andres. Yeah. And uh, you know, he, if he doesn't want that credit on the book, I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, he's a big name, but I, you know, I, I liked I like to think I, I I got to know Jose just before he became super famous. And um, sorry to cut you off, but Jose has 
there's been like a few people in the food world that have changed perception of who we are and what we do and jose is one of them yeah and it's like he's an incredible human being what he's done for the world what he's done for the world of food the food that he puts out on top of that like he is like uh definitely someone that a lot of people should look up to and be like that that's yeah. That's the mountain that I want to try to climb yeah. to try to get to a place. So this was, a, I'll tell you a story um, that was before World Central Kitchen, before he's now kind of the household name that he is. So this is probably um, 2013 or 14. And um, there's a push to get the House of Representatives to pass comprehensive immigration reform. And um, there, SEIU and a number of other activist organizations, we were helping in the background, but just you know tangentially they pitch a tent on the national mall and they start a fast for families and Eliseo Medina um, who is just a revered organizer who's cut his teeth as you know one of the first organizers with Cesar Chavez with United Farm Workers Um, he's then with SEIU and he's leading the fast and this goes back to the days of Chavez so I call up Jose and I say Jose you know these folks on the uh, on the mall they're fasting um, you know, it would be they would be grateful for you to come by and just say hello. Um, and he says, "I'll do it." So we go down there and meet him on like a on like a it was a cold kind of wintry night in this tent, and he just sits there with them and reads an essay that he had written that ended up getting post uh, published as a an op ed for the Washington Post. And I just remember, I, like I was sitting there, kind of watching him talk to folks, um, and I'd seen him kind of in other community settings, and I was just like, "Okay, this is this is real." And, you know, kind of seeing that moment and then kind of watching him do what everything, what everything that he's done since then. Um, it's about, yes, it's about food and it's about making sure that people have food and are fed. But ultimately, it's about people and that people are cared for and respected and, and welcomed. And um, there's just so much that, you know, whether or not he, he, he would ever realize it, that I think we've all learned from him. And I know I have. And. You know, so but it's it's everybody from you know, Jose Andres, and then you know a non-food related story I would share is that you know back when I was in Boston and this is 2007, there was an immigration raid about 60 miles south of uh, Boston in New Bedford, and uh, we had kind of the organization I was running at the time we had helped kind of organize the the response and we set up a, a kind of an operation center in the church basement, and we lined up an NPR story to interview a young man whose wife had been detained and might be deported and they had a young baby and around noon that day um, he gets a call from immigration enforcement they were going to release his wife because of the baby so he just runs out of the church right and we figure NPR is coming at 2 p.m. we're not going to see him and he wasn't a community leader at the time um, he was just a guy who worked in a factory whose wife worked in a factory and he was kind of making you know they were trying to make things happen as undocumented you know, Guatemalan immigrants and um, he comes back at 2 p.m. for the interview. And we said, why are you here? And he says, well, I've learned that this is my community and I have to fight for my community. And, and this is why I said earlier that, you know, I'm always very clear that who I am and who I'm not. Because the folks who are immigrants, the folks who are undocumented, who are putting their names and their voices out there, that just takes a level of courage that I'm never going to have to exhibit. And you know, those are the folks that are pinned against borders, hoping for protection, hoping for freedom. Uh, and, you know, those are the stories that 
I hope we're able to share with the country and I hope I'm able to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think it, t- it takes a certain type of person, I mean, to live almost within fear daily, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that they live their day-to-day life and try to live this grind of, like, every day. Yeah. And essentially live in fear, you know? And I, I in my line of work, I deal with it a ton. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I think that the biggest difference was becoming just like a everyday chef than to becoming a business owner than to becoming a business owner of multiple things. Um, it's eye-opening, you yeah. know, like the story of people and how they live with fear and how they're just trying to... I mean, how big is your company now? Is the company now? Uh, we have five locations growing to eight. We have yeah. 147 employees currently. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a massive operation. It's a lot. It's a and lot of lives. It's a it's a lot of, of human beings that you know. I think the the hardest thing was growing to understand that uh, you're responsible for so many people. Yeah. You know, and, and you want them to be okay, and you want them to be successful, and they all come from different walks of life and very like different struggles. Right. You know, and the struggle could be immigration. The struggle could be different. Right. Uh, I've dealt with everything, like under the sun. So. Um, I couldn't imagine that, right? Because being from, you know, uh, I'm the son of two people that came here when they were fairly young. My mom was like 14 and my dad was 17, I think. Um, You know, I was fortunate enough to be born here and and to, you know, that's why they came here. That's why my grandparents came here. That's why they fled the country that they love very, very much. Um, to give us opportunity and I think that for me and so many people like me um, that's why my work ethic is the way that it is because yeah. I, I would never want to let them down you know and, and I, I have a responsibility to them and, and to their name and to our culture and to so many things and I just want to add to the landscape of what we do but again within that you, you deal with so many different hardships of like your employees and um and their story and their struggles and uh, the dreams that they have too, and and it's it's really it's really really interesting. And, and I think I, I learned so much just from listening to you for eighty minutes before we started recording this. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and and it was it's such a factual outlook on things that I think um, so many people would benefit from listening to. I think that they need to. Again, it's like. It's what we said a little while ago, which was your political party or where you stand or what you do or uh, what you align yourself with. You need to remove yourself from that and just listen to facts about like the longevity and the health of the country as a whole. Right. And maybe accept that you were wrong. Maybe accept that you said wrong things. Maybe accept that uh, maybe you don't want to change. You know, and that's okay. Right. All those things are fine. But having that conversation is the first step to getting somewhere, I guess, you yeah. know. And that's why I said, and I said it earlier, I don't envy your position, right? Because, again, like political standpoints are, they're tough. It's like, you know, it's like people really want right. to like, they want to like sit there and they want to like bear down. And it's like, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. They don't want to listen to any other outlook. And it's... I don't know. I, I think that the I think everyone at all times should have like be open to a conversation. Well, I appreciate this, man. Thank you very, very much for the opportunity. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you.
So I think that um, I think that we're good here. I think that this is probably one of the most uh, intellectual <laughs> conversations <laughs> that we've ever had on Pancom Podcast, which I love. <laughs> Producer, David. we're doing partner recommendations. Oh, here we go. This is the oh man, the Nick, Nick has been drinking, huh? <laughs> Nick, Nick's, Nick looks a little sauced up. Everyone, I know you haven't talked into your ball tickler all day. I know we've retired the ball tickler for the time being. I am shocked by that. You've um, really just been playing nice with your. Uh, uh, has has the ball tickler director. come up? Is Ali totally in the dark on the ball? No, tickler? He's, he's, he's in the dark. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm just gonna be. I'm gonna be straight up. I, I am. You guys can keep that between yourselves. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we'll. Um, It'll be on Nick's Wikipedia page. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to write that for me? No, probably not. But I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Uh, so this is the part of the show I haven't been listening to all this time where we do Great. our wind down. Great. I just like to say that without uh, any of your... Was it better? Oh, so much better. Without any of your involvement, we absolutely crushed it. Yeah, did you solve all the world's problems? Every single one. <laughs> I mean... You know, Jose Andres is going to be on the show next week. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's coming. He's coming in. <laughs> oh, man. He made a phone call for us. We're good. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Um, so this is where we do our wind down. We start with our parting recommendations. This is where uh, we go around the horn here and everybody recommends a thing that our listeners should do or right. watch or eat or read as long as it's not yours because we do shameless plugs after this. Right. And it could be absolutely like ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. It could be like a candy you really like. You want me to give my favorite example here? Sure. Joaquin Gonzalez. <laughs> no, no, no. This nope. is too. No, this is too. It's you know good, this is and you, this is no. You know this, this is, is all the same podcast. Yeah, no, I know this is too good of a podcast okay, to add Joaquin's party recommendation. Absolutely not. Okay, and I great. Love him, but yeah, I'm not adding. Okay, sure. We'll tell Ali about it later. Okay, yeah, it's yeah. good. Um, but yeah, anything that people should eat or read or watch or whatever, we recommend that everything from TV shows to songs to YouTube videos to travel destinations, restaurants, whatever it might be. I'm actually super ready for this. Are you? It's just coming in hot. I yeah. know. I'm super, I'm super ready. But Nick, you go first, right? Because you haven't done shit all night. That is a good point. Yeah, absolutely fucking nothing. That is a good point. I'm going to recommend that if you are a dog owner, okay, trim your dog's nails yourself. Yeah, I oh. just started doing this. Really, game changer. Oh. Why am I paying anybody for this? How's your dog feel about it? He doesn't care about anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does. He does care. No, about I mean he's fine. He's fine. You know, but it it was not as intimidating an experience as I thought it would be. Maybe my dog has the temperament to make it easier. But I would recommend that if you have never given it a shot, give it a shot. If you're a dog owner, trim that guy's nails or that girl's nails or you know however your dog identifies. Um, and, and get in there. Get in there and try to do it yourself. Save yourself a little money. Bathe your dog. Give your dog a shitty haircut. Uh, save some money, you know? Man, yeah. you can really tell he hasn't been involved the whole podcast. That's yeah. like, what a what a parting recommendation. What yeah. else you got, Nick? What else do I got? <laughs> please. Um, <laughs> please. Just come on in. Wow. Um, I am going wow. to recommend. I think I've recommended. Um, I recommended this person's thing before. But I will recommend another thing of his last episode I think I recommended a song called Blasphemy by Coleman Hughes who is a, a columnist for what are you shaking your head you didn't, about I don't think you did I did you don't remember anything <laughs> and tomorrow you're not going to remember any of this that's also true <laughs> uh, Coleman Hughes uh, made his name as a columnist for Quillette he was a protege slash mentee of uh, Columbia University linguist John McWhorter and he's got a song out a rap song 
called Blasphemy that I recommended the last episode that is shockingly good considering mm-hmm. all the background I just gave you that you would not associate with a rap song worth listening to. Um, but he also has a podcast called Conversations with Coleman that is worth listening to. The last episode I heard, I wish I could remember the name of the guest, but it was about, uh, I think the title of the episode was Parenting in the 21st Century. So it was all about like common misconceptions about parenting and child rearing and uh, and education and what you're feeding your kids and kind of like a lot of myth busting about parenting, which was pretty cool. So conversations with Coleman. Uh, uh, it's not always that kind of thing. His, his bread and butter is like conversations about race and especially being black in America. But uh, he's he's an interesting guy. He's he's also a fellow with I forget what like libertarian ish think tank. Got it. Yeah, so that's my thing. Is that enough things for you? Oh, so many. Great. More than I needed. All right, your turn, sir. My turn. Um, let's see. So I would recommend a movie. Uh, it's on Netflix, Heart of They Fall. Okay. Uh, it's with Idris Elba, um, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, oh, dear, I'm blanking on. Uh, it's just fantastic. It's a, it's a black cowboy western. Mm-hmm. Amazing soundtrack. I, it's kind of one of those soundtracks that I'll just kind of have on repeat um just a great 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 flick what was the name again a harder they fall harder they fall harder they fall okay um so i have a couple no i knew you would have a couple so um i was at a i was at a dive bar the other day they're the best kind of bars Man, the best. Do you want a name? I mean, let's give our out of town or a recommendation Se- for Seven next Seas. Uh-huh. Uh, Seven Seas is my my home bar. It is my dive bar. A little crowd approval. Yeah, attaboy. That's <laughs> that's how you know what's up. Um, and they 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 didn't have food that day, so I was with a bunch of like classic car guys, and they were all GMC guys or Bronco guys, Cadillac. Uh-huh. We're all we're all Cadillac guys. <laughs> um, and they all had too much to drink, and they were like, you know, we really want food. And then one of my friends was like, you know, order order from this place. And I said, all right, cool. Order. It's called No Manches, Que Rico. Right? Right? It's, uh, I believe it's on A Street and like something. Uh, I don't really remember. Uh, but the tacos were delicious. Really? After being delivered, which nothing through delivery is any good other than Domino's Pizza, um... It was, uh, and my uh, delivery was by Domino's Claudia. Pizza. That's ads at <laughs> DadeMag.com. We will definitely take your ad money. Um, the the tacos were absolutely delicious, and we crushed them. And uh, that's recommendation on food. On things to view, I am a huge sci-fi yeah. fantasy fan, so I just finished watching The Witcher. Oh, yeah, what you think? Yeah, I liked it. Which, have you watched uh, Station Eleven? No. Would you, okay. Can't ask you what you think because you haven't seen it. What is that on Netflix? It's a uh, HBO. Oh, I'll, I got that. Yeah, I it's got solid. That. It's solid. But Witcher yeah. was good. Witcher was good. Yeah. I, you know, I'm like they said the next season is not going to come out for like another two years. Yeah. Like, how do you stay into it after waiting two years for the next season? They're just yeah. You know, they're, it's they're, very difficult. Yeah. Me- like the bandwidth of humans nowadays is very small. Yeah. Me included when it comes to like shows. <laughs> I'm just saying. I also just finished uh, watching the. Uh, the book of Boba Fett. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like love it, but it was it was. Uh, you know, they make they made Mark Hamill look young again, which and they and that's they a, that's a that's some science fiction. Oof, right is it ever? And yeah. they give him an acting credit on it, which I thought was shocking, because huh. it was like the young version of Skywalker, and I was like, I don't. 
So he looks young, and then he got the credit for it, but this is all CGI. I don't totally understand what's happening. It's, but It's his likeness. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. Yeah. That's when, they, true. when they use my likeness on, like, underwear ads, I'm like, do like, they? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I need I need the royalties. You need on that. the royalties yeah. and the credits, and the, I haven't gotten to that level yet. Right. I, if I, somebody's I, listening to this podcast till then, they're like, up to this point, they're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> this uh, took a dive. So I think those are my my recommendations uh, for the parting side, and then shameless plugs. Shameless plugs. So this is where you plug all your own stuff. Tell people where they can find you and all your things uh-huh. on the interwebs. When are you re- When are you releasing this? Uh, I'm going to try to release it before the end of the week. Oh, well, okay. So that's good. So we actually, we are doing a wonderful dinner with uh, Michelin starred chef Ryan Rutino. And future Pancom podcast guest. And future guest, uh, February 24th. We only have 12 seats left. I think the dinner is going to be a riot. Ryan Rutino of uh, Of Washington, D.C. Yes, correct. From Bresca. Yeah. And Jaunt. Um, And Jaunt. And I think dinner is going to be a good time. Um, like I said, there's 12 seats left. We're also starting to do uh, a bunch of like late night drink things at Chugs, which is exciting. Yeah. Just more of a reason to go there at nighttime and eat food and drink cocktails. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Right. All, and then all the things. Just follow um, all the stuff. This is where we'll play all the things by Sade. Yep. All the things. I still got to recommend all my shit. I mean, we've, we've done this 80 times already. All the things. All the things. All the things. Yeah, all the things. 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 I have like a uh, deep affection for Sade. Oh, I, yeah. have you, did you ever see her in concert? <laughs> I've seen her I, twice. I've, I have said, you've seen her twice? I saw her twice. I am that old. What? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually said openly that I will I will drop whatever amount of money it takes so I can see her in concert. I saw uh, one of the best concerts was Sade. I think opening was Diggable Planets. Oh man, I love Diggable Planets. Yeah, that's like not a very I, common. I am that old. Yeah, just like people would be like Diggable Planets and be like, who? I love Diggable Planets. Yeah. They are. So good. Yeah. So underrated. Totally. Yeah. Wow. What year was that? Go ahead. Tell the people. Oh, that was um, probably like, I was in college, probably like 96, 97. Yeah. Something like that. Makes total sense. Yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. All right. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> Ali, shameless plugs. Where can people find you, find your things, find. Uh, uh, so you can find uh, the work at immigrationforum.org. And then uh, my book, uh, the Recon- I'm sorry, my book, uh, Crossing Borders, The Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants, you can find at Ali Nurani, um, A-L-I-N-O-O-R-A-N-I dot org. Um, book comes out on March 15th. I would really, really appreciate folks pre-ordering. And um, guys, I just got to say thank you. This was really just a lot, a lot of fun. And I just really appreciate all that you, all that you do. Um, I, we completely enjoyed the meal. Really, really, really valued and grateful for the conversation. I just thank you. Man, I am like honored. Man, I am so honored. I, it's really... Are we doing know, a lightning round this episode? Of course we are. All right. So we I'll, have to do a lightning round. I'm going to say thank you so much for being on the podcast before we go into our lightning round. Yeah. Some, for some reason, people pay a dollar every month just to listen to these dumb lightning rounds, but it's really hey, fun listen, questions. Some people are getting mugs, okay? People get mugs. Some people have several mugs. Some people get coffee. 
Oh, yeah? Henry Gomez was the first one who wised up and after, like, mug number five, switched to the coffee tier. Somebody has five mugs? He might have four. I don't know. He's got four a bunch. He's, he's got too many mugs. Too many mugs. So, um, okay. We're done here? Lightning so, uh, we'll do our shameless plugs. You can uh, you can find all the Pangong Podcast things at on social media, at Pangong Podcast, P-A-N-C-O-N Podcast, Panko. not Pumpkin Podcast, Panko. not Panko Podcast. Panko. Uh, not Pinko Podcast or any of the other things that we've gotten in the past. It's Bang Gong Podcast. Also, DadeMag.com slash Bang Gong Podcast. And you can give us all of your money, all of it, every penny at Patreon.com slash DadeMag, D-A-D-E-M-A-G for uh, the f- people in the mug tier. Mm-hmm. You get mugs every three months, yep. or you can join the coffee tier and you get a, a, a bag of whole bean Abuela Mami coffee wow. every month wow. in the mail, sometimes every other month when I forget to ship it <laughs> and send you two at a time, which so is the case now. There are people who are owed this month. Pretty impressive month. operation you got here, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know Petey the dog is really not pulling his weight around here. the puppet master over here. Oh, like, yeah. He's just like absolutely crushing it. All right, we're going to sign off here so we can go to a lightning round before we get embarrassed anymore. And now for the sign-off sound effect. Boop.